This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Maroa Yejide, author of the novel Creatures of Passage. I'm more interested in not so much what people do, but why, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, to me, that's where this, the real story is, um, what drives behaviors. We'll be back with Maroa Yejide after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, 
but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with novelist Maroa Yejide. Her first novel, Time of the Locust, was a finalist for the Penn Bellwether Prize and a 2015 NWACP Image Award nominee. Her most recent novel, Creatures of Passage, was shortlisted for the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence and was a 2021 notable book selection by NPR and The Washington Post. She is a native of Washington, D.C., where she still lives. Her novel, Creatures of Passage, takes place in 1970s D.C. and follows two twins. One is alive and one is dead. The twins have the names of the Egyptian gods Nephthys and Osiris. Nephthys is mourning the death of her brother and earns money driving a cab around the city that has the ghost of a dead white girl in the trunk. Her brother's daughter Amber and her son Dash live in a sort of oasis in the city where Amber is an oracle, but she sees only people's deaths. Dash appears at his great aunt's door one day amidst great danger as there is a pedophile in his midst. And the deceased Osiris's spirit is communicating to Dash and wandering D.C. seeking revenge. It took Yejide 17 years to write the novel, and we began talking about that. Yeah, so, you know, I was writing it off and on, and writers, like, at least in my case, I I wrote around my life. So I wrote around marriage. I wrote around motherhood. I wrote around jobs. I started the book when our youngest son was like four weeks old. <laughs> and, and I finished it when he was 17. So he was kind of the clock in our, in our family. It was, it was a family joke that Creatures of Passage is the fourth child. You know, we had three three boys and the book was the fourth one. So, but the book really grew with me um, through the years and it sort of morphed um, as the city morphed and changed along as, as I changed along. So, you know, it wasn't continuously, it was just in periods, different uh, years where I had blocks of, of time. I actually set it aside to write what ended up being called my debut novel, which was Time of the Locust. Um, you know, for me, there's, I was never a believer in, in some sort of um, writing life that, that the media tends to paint um, for writers, you know, where we have a cabin somewhere, and we're never interrupted by anything. And in my case, that was just not the case. So I, I embraced all of it as I went along. And I think that's why the book has a sense of time and permanence and fleeting and gain and loss, because those were the things that were going on throughout the years as I was writing it. Do you think there was something about having your third child and being four weeks into his life that was almost surreal that pushed this because there is a surreal element to the book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think we, my husband and I had a sense that, okay, this is, this is the last, 
this is the last one we'll have, last child. And, um, you know, every time you, you know, look into your child's eyes, you, I've, I always had a sense of eternity. You know, it's like looking into the, the future and extrapolating what could happen and, and all the wondrous possibilities. So those were the things that, that ran through my mind. And I think that was on my mind a lot. Um, at the same time, you know, I was getting older. My father was getting older. I had lost loved ones and aunties. And so you, at that time, I was really thinking about the line of, of existence that we kind of all travel. And I think that's why that ended up being a theme, looking at this child at the beginning of his life and thinking about all of the, the pathways that, that he'll go down. It's interesting that you say that it's a line of existence. One of the quotes in the book I wanted to ask you about, and then we can explain the book a little more for the listener, is it's in the beginning and you have a character who basically sees the fate of people who will die. And this gets published in the newspaper uh, under this column called The Lottery. And the reporter is there to talk to her. And he was thinking, like, does he get kind of freaked out by this? And he was remembering something that I think maybe his grandmother said to him. And it goes like this. We just going round and round. We creatures of passage. And we're going to keep going round till we understand the loop. So I wanted to ask you about existence as a loop versus a line. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of like the world is flat, that belief at a certain time, but it, it but it, it's actually, the earth is actually round. And I think for us, we, in a, on a smaller scale, things can look linear. And, but then when you stand back and look at the, the patterns of history, and the, the repetitions of history, it looks like a circle. You know, it looks like um, things start at a certain point and they circle back to where they began. I think, I think my fascination with the natural world fed a, a lot of that, just observing the, the natural order of things where, you know, we begin and end at a certain point the seasons begin and end at a certain point and, and it's cyclical. It's, it's a cycle. So um, that carried over to that character, her looking at, and, and also her just a commentary or meditation on the idea of when you're not learning a certain lesson or you, you're not recognizing certain things that, that, um, a greater knowledge of things, then you have to repeat it again. So this is what the great loop um, really is. You know, there, in a sense, there's no, the hell that people may call something, the hell that people may describe is really being caught in the same cycle of destruction or the same cycle of mistakes. So that's kind of what his grandmother was referring to. <laughs> I know so, that hell. Oh yeah, I think I think we've all experienced that um, in one way or another. Where you, we say to ourselves, "How do we? How did I get back here? How did I get here again?" You know, you think you're going in a in a linear fashion away from something, and then you find yourself right back 
at it again where you started. <laughs> Creatures of Passage it takes place in Anacostia and it's 1977, but it feels also that it it's inhabiting an interstitial space because you have the living and the dead in the same realm. And the main character is really this woman named Nephthys and she drives a 67 Plymouth and she's kind of a, almost like an otherworldly cab driver. She appears for people when they need a ride and she just knows where to go. And there's kind of a preternatural knowing for her of where, who needs a ride and when. And she's in mourning really is what she is. She's like a fairy person ushering people from place to place because she is was a twin and her twin Osiris was murdered and found in the Anacostia River and we learn throughout the book how he was murdered but she doesn't really know and there's this bond between them as twins and he was uh, murdered in a racist attack by people he he worked for and she has a, a niece Amber and she's the one who she kind of lives almost in this, I'm envisioning it's like in the middle of the city, but it's in this very special place filled with nature. It's almost like a depression in the land where she has this rich garden and she has this this knowing about when people will die. And she has a son named Dash who she had a premonition or a vision that he might die. It's really disturbing for her. And Dash is just witnessed a molestation at the school that he goes to, and it's really haunting for him. And so he goes to Nephthys, who is his great aunt, who he doesn't even know, to sort of make a connection with her. And we have a lot of hauntings in the book. Dash talks to Osiris by the river. Osiris is kind of navigating his ghostly life. And we have some other characters who are very haunted by loss, so there's a lot of noise in this world from, from various realms and a lot of people really suffering, trying to figure out their place in the world. And it's also very rooted in the journey of African-American people in D.C. and a lot of mentions and references to historical racism and what we suffer internally and in our bodies. And it's really a journey story. It really is a journey story. I chose twins because it was an, I thought it was an interesting way to show. So Nephthys is going along her journey in the land of the living, trying to help people along in their passage through their lives. And her brother is on the other side of death's door as a spirit doing the same thing, going on his journey. So it's, it's a it's sort of a twin journey of, of these two uh, siblings and how they both experience their existence, so to speak. In a significant way, I was trying to show the different worlds that exist in Washington, DC, because Washington um, historically has a very monolithic, it's portrayed in a very monolithic way. You know, it's the government, it's, it's uh, the intelligence community, but um, it's a very vibrant city and people live out their lives and have been here for many generations, uh, my family included. You know, the irony is there are so many interior worlds uh, within Washington, D.C., and, and often they never meet. They're like marbles spinning separately right next to each other. 
So this is why you can have an urban landscape um, like Anacostia, um, very challenged community with a lot of rich history, but a lot of economic challenges. But within that community, you could have these sort of natural oasis areas like where Amber lives. I mean, that that whole garden is really modeled after my grandmother's garden in, in Anacostia. It felt like a microclimate <laughs> within this very urban setting. And so I was showing a lot of contradictions. DC is a, is a place of great contradictions. You have incredible uh, wonder and, and incredible horror right next to each other. These characters in the book are on this odyssey where they're witness to and victim of and problem solver of all of these, these odysseys and elements that, that um, they're exposed to along the way. What is it about your sensibility or either as an artist or as a human in the world or maybe the way that you grew up with so many generations of people there that you saw this story as the, a story that is inhabiting all these worlds at once, that there isn't really a distinction between once you die and once you're living and that some lessons for the reader is that we can see it all happening at once, that this idea of ghosts maybe isn't so far from us, that we're all existing all at the same time. So I'm curious about what about you made you interested in that world? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you lose a parent, um, I, I lost my mother when I was uh, right before I finished college, right before my, my last year. And, you know, she had an illness. So, you know, I, I had a front row seat to, you know, watching the, the horror go down. But, you know, the irony is, is we had all of these long existential conversations. And, you know, she really was already articulating how she felt with having one foot in this world and one foot in the next. And it seemed to me um, the things she shared really accentuated the fact that she could already feel um, herself as being a part of, of the next world or the spirit world. And that, um, you know, she'd say things like, you know, I'll, I'll be here you can call on me, we can uh, remember the things that I've taught you, but if you need to talk, you know, I'll be here in your heart, those kinds of things. And these were things that she said in a very clear, matter of fact way. So I think that set a, a real tone um, with me in that, um, you know, life is not permanent, it's, it's not guaranteed, um, but then, in a wild kind of way, it's also it's also infinite in, in other forms. And so, you know, when you're a young person and you're at the beginning of your life and you lose one of the most important people, you know, in your in your life, but they have the the clarity of thought to talk to you about um you know, your path. I mean, she would it was almost like she could see things unrolling you know, for my life. And she said, you're going to go on and you're going to do this and you're going to learn this. And you're going to make mistakes, but you'll have time to fix those mistakes. And, you know, all those, it was like she could um, extrapolate. And so I think that left a watermark on me, that whole experience. 
you know, when I had my own children, then there was the fascination with the beginning of, of life. And then what door had they come through before they, you know, arrived here with me? Those types of things. I, I think probably my fascination with the Big Bang Theory and the formation of, of galaxies. I was always fascinated with all those kinds of things when I was a very young child. And um, my father always encouraged me, you know, with telescopes and, you know, taking me to planetariums. And, you know, I, I had a rock collection and, you know, I was always fascinated with geology. And, and so I, I got a sense that all of these things, all of these elements are somehow connected. And writing was a way for me to, to explore um, the ways that they could be connected if we could understand or if we had a way to know. Um, that's, that was the fun in the fiction for me. You know, having boys in this country, you know, the stuff of our dinner conversation was always about what could happen to them, the dangers they were faced with in spite of every effort we may make. And so I think that's why the center of the story is, is this little boy Dash, you know, and it's really about the community coming together, both the living and the dead, coming together to save um, this boy. And I think probably subconscious, in a subconscious way, that's always my, um, you know, mission, you know, gotta save the boy, you know. And I think that's why there's that recurring line in Creatures of Passage, you know, where they say, you and I know that things can happen to a boy, which is a very loaded statement and means so many different things to African-American moms and grandmothers. You know, it, 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 it's such a heavy statement. And um, his character really represents the future of the community, um, the hope of the community and um, the possibilities um, for, for life. You just described so much complexity, so much, you know, from your interest in geology to your mom, you know, giving you this advice and being in two worlds and what young men face in this country. How did you take all that and organize it into this book? Like, how, how did you do that? I think it, it may come from, the, well, okay, it comes from two things, I think. One is um, I'm very visually oriented. Um, my mom was a painter and, you know, she also wrote songs, but, but specifically painting. And I used to sit and watch her paint oil on canvas. So that, that was her medium um, of expressing, you know, the things she observed. And I think for me, words became my way of expressing, but my process is still a painting kind of process. So the, the story is always this big mural in my mind and I'm painting, I'm, I'm giving certain themes, more light and more shadow, more blue over here, more green over here. Um, it's like a, I write, different parts of the novel at once. So it's not a linear process. It's more like a huge mural that I'm uh, working on to try to capture this whole image in its totality. And it's kind of like um, 
you work on it and you work on it until you stand back and look at it and you say, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. That's that's how I wanted it to look. So it, it it's hard to describe, but that's probably the closest description to to um, how I uh, come up with this style of writing. The other thing is, you know, as an only child, you, you get to be very inventive and imaginative. And, you know, we spend a lot of time alone, a lot of time thinking about things and observing things. You spend a lot of time around a lot of adults. So you're observing um, dialogue. And, and I think um, that habit or um, way of being became sort of the way I looked at everything as a writer, everything kind of goes into my pot or cauldron. <laughs> so, you know, it could be something I hear on the Metro, you know, someone, a conversation on the subway. It could be something I observe on a walk. Um, I read a lot. Of, I love to read many different um, journals and research papers. Um, all of those things kind of go into the mix. And then when I come to begin writing, it always starts around a single image or a single concept. And then I just build out that big mural I was describing based on that single image or single concept. So what was the first image you started writing in this book? The first image was actually a color, the, the color indigo. And it sounds very abstract, and I guess it is, but the, the idea, it's one of my favorite colors, but the idea of it's a color that has a lot of history, especially in terms of the African slave trade and, and how the craft of, of indigo dye was brought over and, and how it was exploited here in the, in the, in the Sea Islands, but also just as a color, um, it's sort of bottomless and, and magical. I like things with dual and, and you know many layered meanings. This is why Creatures of Passage also has kind of a color spectrum, a color change uh, throughout the, the book. Um, and um, but yeah, it started really with with that idea of if we could if we could describe a color as being infinite as being um, timeless, like water, like a river, like the ocean. All of those things were related to just that one color and then the history attached to color and then the, the magic and possibility of, hey, there's paths that will continue to travel. There's a ripple, you know, one ripple moves infinitely through time. It's a very um, organic way that I, I, that I come up with these ideas. And then once I have them down, I, I, I sort of begin to stitch them together like a, like a quilt. And then I go into um, the very merciless phase of, of editing and uh, revision, you know, does it make sense? You know, could this work in this particular mythology that I've created? Um, it's, you know, two hats. One is very creative and, and one is very technical and type A that I have in my mind. But the, but the pure creative process is very much organic and, and I try to keep the child inside of me alive <laughs> with that, you know, look at it through just the wonder of something. 
and then try to describe it. I felt the colors. I really, <laughs> I really did. Like when you would talk about Osiris and maybe because I know the Anacostia is like so muddy and brown, like I felt this sort of like brown haze around him. And, and you did very much describe the cobalt blue and the smoke around Amber. And I felt like Nephthys was, she was interesting because I felt she, like she also had this sort of dark smokiness about her, but it got lighter. Like I felt like she did have the sun inside of her, but it was, um, it was very masked because of her pain. And she also drank a lot. Yeah. I think, um, as you probably noticed throughout the book, I, I use very human frailties and flaws as a way to power the particular character as well. So in other words, their handicap is also their uh, way to, to manage, and in some cases, their power. You know, you mentioned Color Osiris. You know, he, he's in the, the underworld, um, the afterlife, and it's a hellscape for him. So there's a lot of red and fire and amber and, and brimstone. And he's a very, what you call an angry spirit. But as he progresses and as he evolves, it, that cools, you know, into aquamarine and, you know, and then a deep blue as his understanding deepens. Um, but yeah, Anacostia is, um, you know, this, it's set in 1977. The story is set in 1977 because, you know, as a seven-year-old, that was like the biggest time of wonder for me that I remember looking at things and observing things. So, and also in that, at that time, there was still a lot that was undeveloped in Anacostia. So you still had a lot of the, the natural world and remnants of, of rural areas. Uh, for example, you know, it's, it's a very urban setting, but then my grandmother's house was right next to Frederick Douglass's house, which was at the foot of this hill. So you have this huge hill in the middle of, of, of all of this this urban, um, you know, cacophony. So it's a, again, you know, the, the contradictions are very interesting to um, observe and, and display. And I think you see that a, a lot in the book. It's not all one way and all, nor is it all another way. It's, um, the, it's the whole tapestry. And I was really trying to do justice for the families the generations that that have lived there and also the transients. Many people come to D.C. from other places and they discover that it's not what they thought. <laughs> and they also discover, um, you know, a new pathway for themselves based on their experiences here because it is a very unique place. It's, you know, that you have the phenomenon of the DMV, you know, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. So these adjacent states function almost like suburbs, you know, they're, they're suburbs, really, they're satellites of, of Washington. And you wouldn't know that unless you lived here, you know, and spent time here, you wouldn't realize that, that, you know, 10, five and 10 miles over the line is still DC in everyone's mind, you know, even though it's Maryland, or even though it's Virginia. So I wanted to also paint that, you know, the top of the topography of uh, Washington in terms of how it feels, not so much um, what the map says, but but how it's experienced. 
Can we talk a little bit about Nephthys and and who she is? As I said earlier, she is this sort of um, alternative cab driver who has these premonitions and knows and of who needs to be picked up. And she's really suffering from the death of her twin and also the unknown nature of how he died. And as we mentioned, she drinks a lot and she's very solitary and she's such a good person, but also it's just covered by so much pain. Yeah. She feels guilty too. You know, she's, she's wishing she had done a better job, you know, as an aunt, you know, with, with her niece, but she hasn't, she hadn't been able to get over, you know, the, the, the family trauma, but Nephthys, you know, I love, as I said, multi-layered characters and themes. So Nephthys is the ferryman or, or the, in Egyptology, she is the one that is the friend of the dead and carries them over to um, the, the, the land of the dead, helps them to make their passage, so to speak. So in very literal terms, she was inspired by um, my grandmother who, who drove a cab. She was one of the first three black female cab drivers in Washington. And this is in an era, you know, this is late 50s, you know, this is early 60s. So I, I thought, wow, you know, imagine what that was like for her driving through that era and through that time. So I wondered about the people who got into her car and where they went and their lives. So the passengers became a window um, in, into um, what it's like to be in D.C. And Nephthys is the tool or her vessel, so to speak, as the ferryman, is this Plymouth, <laughs> this 67 Plymouth um, that's haunted. And, the, you know, the car is haunted. Everybody knows this car is haunted. But she provides a very important service in this community and those who really need her services. You know, she's there for them. and But she's, um, it, the irony of her character is she helps others to find their way, but she herself is lost. Um, you know, she's, she herself doesn't know. Um, and there's again, out there again, I was um, trying to also imbibe the, the complexity of character. She's a heroine, you know, she's, She's a composite of many, many um, uh, women who have, you know, been under great duress and great challenges, but still offer themselves to others um, and help to try to help them. Yeah, there's a dead white girl in the trunk who bangs around. Yeah, she's she's the wild card. You know, she she's a wild card in in the story because, unlike the other passengers. Um, you know, she's sort of the, the she's sort of the charm. Why the car is charmed itself, you know, never breaks down, never runs out of gas, never stopped by the police, and it's because of her presence there. But then the flip side is, you know, unlike other um, ghosts or other uh, lost souls, she's unwilling or unable to make her transition. You know, she's. She's, and I think she mirrors people on the flip side in life. You know, we have people who really fly and soar with their goals and they go for it. And then you have others who kind of sit down on the curb. Um, 
and they're un, they're afraid and unable to move forward. So she represents that sort of counterbalance on flip side of of the living. And you were talking about the guilt that she feels. So she has Amber, who is her niece, and mm-hmm. that's Osiris's daughter and Osiris's wife. She died from a hit and run. Um, but when yeah. she when she was pregnant and then Amber was born from that. And so they both, the twins kind of both raised her, but after Osiris died, there was just this, this rift between them. And it was like, not only that Nephthys couldn't like connect with Amber, but she physically couldn't even go to her house anymore. And then Amber's like dealing with, you know, she has this son dash. She won't speak about the father or where he went. And she's having these visions of death. So just wanted to ask you a little bit about Amber. Yeah, Amber's like a modern day witch. (laughs) You know, she's a witch, um, for lack of another word. And her ability is sparked by the, you know, how she was, uh, how she came into the world. You know, she was, her mother was, you know, died in a hit and run. And she was pregnant with her at the time, you know, very near to delivery time. So you know, she gets, they bring her to the hospital. She's dead on arrival, but they deliver this, this, this child nonetheless. And so the child, Amber has sort of the death has kind of marked her literally. And this is why she has these visions and knows, you know, that that's the, the, her gift, so to speak, but it's a curse. It feels like a curse to her. And, um, you know, Nephthys tried um, to the best of her ability to cope with this this um, gift um, that Amber has, but you know every time it came true, you know it's in the news. It's it's um, published in in something called the Lottery, which is a local newspaper. But then when she would see it happen on the the, the six o'clock news, when it would always come to fruition, she she struggled with that. And at the core of her issue with her niece is that, wow, you know how all these other people died, but you 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 didn't see how your father, you know, was gonna die. You didn't you didn't know what you were seeing um in terms of your vision about your own father. So it creates this splinter in their relationship, you know. And and I think Nephthys feels a lot of guilt for resenting her own niece, you know, about um something that she couldn't understand as, you know, a child. And I think that um, she represents the, you know, the families that we try to, to maintain and try to uphold, but there's sometimes there's incidents or traumas that, that come into play that, that really um, break the tie that was there. And so really their struggle, all of the characters is, you know, how can we, their big question mark is how can we put this back together again? You know, how can we come back to the place where we were, or at least find a place where we could start anew? Um, And um, Nephthys really struggles with whether she's got what it takes to do that, whether she's able to admit um, her own um, resentment and anger and and difficulty. Uh, You know, this is why she says, you know, nobody's on <laughs> you know, she's she's not proud of herself um, or how she's handled um, 
And I think the counter to that is the, the young girl, Rosetta, the young prostitute in the story. You know, she can't save her niece. So in a way she tries to have a bond with, with this young girl, you know, hoping that maybe she can somehow save her. So it's, there's a lot of dark irony in Creatures of Passage and a lot of um, duplicity <laughs> in, in what the characters are either admitting or, or, or not admitting um, quietly to themselves. There's so much darkness in general, but it, it's not, none of it is gratuitous. It's just a reflection of the world that we live in. It's a reflection of this racist culture. It's a reflection of the origins. It's a reflection of that fear that you have as a mother of a black boy. It is death. It is dastardly murders, predation on children. And you're so smiley um, as a person. How did you hold all this? And I don't want to sound naive because you have to hold it every day. Oh, yeah. But I think I know what you mean in terms of the question. You know, fiction, I think writing can can be a real outlet for processing or trying to understand um, the world around you. And But I think, you know, there is a lot of darkness. And as a writer, I had to go to some very, very dark places um, to try to describe um, some of the truths that these characters um, experience. And yeah, that that what that was not easy. Mercy Ratchet's character um, was not easy at all to write, to deal with, to imagine. And in and then even the research that I did, I love researching. So I, I read a lot of things about pedophilia and pedophiles and listened to what they had to say, listened to their point of view as and it and it was really, really, really difficult. Um, very dark. It was like being down in this well that you're trying to climb out. You can't get out the well. <laughs> but um, I'm more interested in not so much what people do, but why. Why they're doing what they're doing. Um, to me, that's where this, the real story is. Um, what drives behaviors, good and bad. What drives each of the characters in the book to, to do the things they do and what drives them to run away from the things they're running away from. I think um, you can get away with that in literary fiction because it's very much concerned with the interior dialogue, the, the person, the character. And I was always interested in the interior dialogue that we have with ourselves, that people, the things that people don't say to me is that's where the real dialogue is, what they're not saying out loud. Um, what they're thinking about in the quiet uh, or, you know, in the dark by themselves. Th these are the, the things that really are beneath the surface, I think, of, of uh, human behavior. And so if you're going to deal with difficult subjects um, that are in the book, it's really a meditation on Washington, D.C., which is a meditation on the United States. And you cannot talk about the United States without talking about Washington as a city. And you can't talk about Washington as a city without talking about the African-American community because it, it's such a huge piece of the history of the city, the flavor of the city. And um, it's also a barometer um, when you look at gentrification and all the changes 
that have taken place over the years in Washington, you can then get a sense of, it's a microcosm of what happens nationally as well. And then also it's very interesting to show the light and the dark, the good and the bad of Washington, because when you travel and go to other countries, you know, <laughs> I think it's important to step back and look at the United States as a country among many countries. And, you know, this is why you have the different language that I use, you know, different, you know, the empire language. Um, it, it's an empire among other empires that have risen and fallen. And if you look at it in the larger scope of time, I think we can, if you look at anything in a larger scope of time, I think you can get a, a deeper understanding of, of uh, some things and get a greater perspective and context, you know, of, of many things that may impact you on a daily basis or within your lifetime. But then you're, you're realizing that this all fits into a much larger rubric that started or was built before you were born. So those are, um, you know, those are the things that run through my mind in, in constructing um, the, the um, landscape of, of the book for Washington, D.C. And, you know, and I really wanted to show, you know, all of our, our stories and all of, all of their majesty and, and all of their horror. I think that's a more honest take, um, at least a more rich, a richer take at least. Um, um, to uh, think about some things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I really felt that with Osiris's death too. It reminded me a lot of Emmett Till and his death was very rooted in just the racist history of our country and also like the the small individual acts that weren't even perpetrated or were kind of meaningless. Like for him, he worked for the owner of a, really a white trash owner of a, a furniture store and the wife was kind of coming on to Osiris and he was not having it. He wasn't interested in it, but that didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the Rileys, that, that, that family, uh, that, I mean, I, again, majesty and horror, it was important to also to, to also show old Anacostia because there was a time when Anacostia was all white there were families that had been there for many, many years. Um, many immigrant families had been there for many, many years. So the Rileys, you know, it, it's it, it's not so um, two-dimensional for them. You know, I think he struggled with a lot of resentment. You know, there was a lot of, uh, yeah, a whole shift in, in what he, how he was able to define his own value in that community, and it's easy to take it out on the immediate, um, what's perceived as the immediate threat. I, it, I also tried to show what drove his behavior and, and what drove his wife's behavior, you know, the, the complexities and difficulties in their marriage that was, you know, rooted by power struggle, you know, um, between the two of them. And, um, you know, the struggle of the wife to, to have um, to be valued and, and to have a sense of, you know, her her sense of her own value had been called into question with the rejection by being rejected by Osiris. You know, if you're taught something all your life, your whole life, and then you realize, oh, this is this is 
you know, this is a crock. This is not actually true. Then what does that mean, you know, for me? And she wasn't able to face that, you know, so she took the easier choice, which, which was to blame the, what was perceived as the immediate threat. But I think, you know, for me, it was, that was an important element to show, you know, old Anacostia versus the Anacostia that evolved into these, you know, after, through the 50s and 60s and the 70s. And um, I think the refrain of many years later throughout the book, I had a lot of fun with that because um, the reader can know some things um, that the characters don't know <laughs> simply because we're reading this, you know, the reader is reading this story in this current era, this current time, but that character doesn't know that, you know, and I think that's true for us now in this era. You know, they're, they're, we have no way of knowing many things that, that are coming down the pike uh, for us. We only know what we can know in this era. Um, and so I think that, um, again, with, with Osiris, um, he just, he's the counter to Nephthys as her twin. You know, the, 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 the mythology um, in, in, in the Egyptian lore is that, you know, he was murdered and divided into many pieces of himself. And so I used that concept in a very literal way in the book. And you can get away with that in magical realism. You can have or at least in my mind, <laughs> you, you can have the mundane or the literal or gritty right next to the fantastical and um, the magical. So, you know, his murder in, in a way is mirroring the, 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 um, the Egyptian myth and same thing for Nephthys. I gave, the, I gave some of the characters characteristics of those deities, um, but played with how it would play out in a in a urban setting or a um, literal real world setting, um, it's difficult to say urban setting when you're talking about Anacostia because it is a very interesting. Um, you know, it has a lot of historical uh, landmarks and, and a lot of river. You know, it's divided by rivers, so it's a it's almost like an island um, compared to the rest of. Of Washington DC is divided by rivers and bridges. So this is why I think um, the reader will get a sort of almost an island feel, you know, an isolated feel of um, of the characters when they cross the bridge and now they're back in Costa or they cross the bridge and now they're at the Capitol. You know, it's two different worlds. And I remember as a kid, um, you know, our family church was on this it's still there, but it was on this huge hill and you could you could look out and there was this panoramic view. You could see the monument and, and, and all of that. And it really did feel like an empire far, far away. So um, the, for the characters, um, yeah, it's Washington, but it's, you know, they, they feel very separated from the, the empire, so to speak. Is there anything else about this book that you want to talk about that I didn't ask you? Really, what I what I would want any reader to come away with is that Creatures of Passage is an invitation um, to go on a journey, on an odyssey, really, a wild ride um, with these characters 
um, where you're going to get windows into many different kinds of Washingtonians and their lives um, and get a real view of, of what, what it feels like to live here, proximity to all of the rhetoric and, and imagery about Washington. Um, I, think, I think that would be my greatest hope um, that, that the author would, that the, the reader would um, come along with me uh, on this journey through time. Um, and I think because of the way it's written, there are many things that the reader would recognize uh, wherever they lived um, about human behavior, about human challenges, about the, the hopes for people who are struggling with something. Sometimes the victory um, is really in just moving forward, the commitment to move forward and to carry on anyway. And that's, that's ultimately the message of, of Creatures of Passage um, that, um, you know, we're, we're all on this big, great ship we call the Earth, you know, floating through, you know, time and space. We're all in this together. And I think by understanding, taking a moment to, to look at something through someone else's eyes gives a greater view in, into uh, the greater experience of all of us. Can you read a passage that from another author that influenced you as a writer? Oh, sure. So, of course, there's so many. It was hard for me to pick one. It really, really was. I have so many authors that, that mean a lot to me. But I think because of the magical realism, I, I'm going to read from Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And it's really just the very beginning, which I, I remember reading this thinking, oh, there's another way of looking at the world. There's another way of, of putting one thing next to another in a story. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Herner, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. At that time, Macondo was a village of 20 adobe houses built on the bank of a river of clear water that ran along a bed of polished stones, which were white and enormous, like prehistoric eggs. The world was so recent that many things lacked names, and in order to indicate them, it was necessary to point. I always thought, my goodness, you know, the world was so recent. And that was almost like an otherworldly way to, to talk about, um, um, you know, a, a new earth, you know, where, in a time where none of, none of us would have existed. Um, and then to extrapolate, to bring that all the way down to the level of this, this kid um, and his memory. Um, so, yeah, there's many, many passages that was, that was a very difficult question for me to answer because there's there's so many books, you know, as I lay dying, there's so many books, so many sections in that book, um, Song of Solomon, so many sections in that book as well. It's, it's very tough to choose one, um, but that would be one of them. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Sure. What was tricky for me was trying to tell something from the perspective of, of a ghost. 
you know, I've never been dead before. I don't know any ghosts and don't get a chance to talk to them, but just trying to understand um, their pain. Um, she rolled over in the trunk and started to cry when she thought about the rest, the two men who grabbed her. No one ever saw them pull her body from the trunk, nor did they see when one of them dropped his end and her head hit the littered shore and he picked her up, slippery with the black slag that years of dumped industrial furnace residue along the banks had rocked. Many years later, there would be other young women in the back rooms of organizations and behind the frosted glass of boardrooms and under the desks of powerful men and in the gold-trimmed offices of the Acropolis. And they would discover that their efforts often led to more ways to lose than to win. But the white girl in the trunk had no way of knowing this as she stared into the oil spots on the carpet lining, fingering through it for her missing necklace as she had a thousand times before. What she knew, as all who find themselves in Anacostia do, was that dreams come true even when people don't want them to. She sobbed and curled up tight next to the spare tire, for she could never go back to her Allegheny home in the kingdom of Pennsylvania, a wasteland of plundered coal deposits and dying hemlock forests, a place she ran to the capital to escape. And she couldn't stay in that river either, dark and cold as it was. So there was no other place for her to be, no other space she felt she could belong, but in the trunk of Nephthys Kinwell's car. Do you want to share why that was maybe hard or changed? What was tough for that was trying to imagine what someone who, the, the footprint of, of some or the echo of somebody who had been murdered and then put in the trunk um, and then dumped in the river, but then her spirits still kind of trapped in this trunk. And then what she might think about all of those years um, after um, she would think about her past. She would think about, uh, you know, it's, it was just a, a, it was just a fun exploration of trying to um, personify um, what that could look like um, and get in touch with how she might feel. Um, you know, she's trapped, but it's also her choice. You know, it's her safe harbor in, in a dark, ironic way. Um, yeah, it's, I, but I thought, I saw that as a, as a fun challenge. Um, yeah. And again, there's that fluidity between the living and the dead. So in my mind, there, there would be no real distinction between how a ghost, the, the regrets that a ghost might have, or the, the difficulties or sorrows that a ghost might have. There would be there would be little difference between that and someone who was living. Where do you write? It depends on the story. It depends on the book. So, you know, Time of the Locust, I wrote a lot of that in the tub because <laughs> my kids were a lot younger. And that was the only place that I could really have, you know, I could have a two-hour block or, you know, it was a rule in our house, mom's in the tub. So I had a two-hour block uninterrupted. So I wrote a lot of that in, in the tub with the gel pen and you know, and a clipboard. Um, Creatures of Passage, I wrote a lot of that at my desk in the wee hours, you know, three and four o'clock in the morning, 
and also on trails. I did a lot of, I would work out a lot of chapter concepts on nature trails and, uh, you know, uh, Rock Creek Park trails. So there, I was surrounded a lot by the natural world as well, um, writing creatures of passage. So there, but yeah, there's no, you know, there's no cabin, you know, in the woods for me. There's no mahogany desk, you know, or, or you know, roaring fire or anything like that. It's, it's just, you know, the, my desk and, and the blank screen, the computer. My mind is so rich with so many landscapes. <laughs> I really don't need a, you know, much uh, around me because there's so much going on inside. But um, yeah, in a practical level, it's it's pretty standard um, where I work. Other, again, it depends on the story. I'll I'll work through some things, you know, um, in places outside. But then when it gets down to the actual writing it out, uh, you know, I'm in front of my computer. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? It's tough, right? I don't think I ever really get away from from writing. And it's not something I ever want to get away from. I enjoy it. Um, but I think I've embraced other tasks as a way to get away from the mechanical, you know, stiffness of sitting and typing. So I, I like, I enjoy cooking. Um, I enjoy, I take these long, super long meditative walks and I'll think about a whole lot of other things. And, and you know, sooner or later, the, the a writing idea will creep into my mind. And, and I just love that, you know? So I say, oh, when I get back, you know, I'll, I'll jot that down and then work on it later. I try to be constructive about it, you know, go exercise, you know, mix it up. I mean, life, life takes you away from writing anyway. You know, there's the constant interruption of life, um, things you have to do, responsibilities, um, the, the fun of family. You know, those are all things that take me away from writing anyway. At the same time, they inform my writing, so I never resent it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, I have this thing where I never, ever, ever show it to anyone until I feel it's completely or as, as close to ready in my mind as possible. So it's it would be my husband. That's it. He's been the only one who's ever seen any um, finished draft. Um, and that's it. You know, he, he's kind of my my uh, my alter ego sounding board you know, slash conscience. And so he always gets to take the first look. Did he know that when you got married, that that was going to be part of the deal? No, <laughs> he didn't. But, you know, the funny thing is, you know, we met in a bookstore. We, we met in a bookstore um, when we were, you know, in our early, early, well, I was 19, you know, but we, we were very young and um, who knew, you know, many years later that, that I would be writing these books and being compared to people I admired, you know, on the shelves that I was looking at at the time. But he did always say that, you know, you're, you're a scribe. I think you're, you know, you're, you have an eye. He always did know, he always did notice and comment on that. Um, but no, he didn't realize at the time that that he would become my very first editor, <laughs> my very first reader for everything. He loves it, though. 
you know, it's a real thrill. And he always says he feels honored to, to be the first one to, to read something. How have you dealt with rejection? I've had to say to myself, listen, you know, writing is subjective and reading is subjective. And people come, people bring their judgments and opinions and feelings and experiences to the page when they read something. And it's difficult, you know, you have to have an unwavering belief in what your message is and the story and, and an unwavering belief in your style and voice of how you're you're conveying those messages. And I I just always was convinced that this is my gift. This is what I'm sharing. You know, I'm sharing this with the world and some will some will like it and some won't. There's nothing you can do. There's absolutely nothing you can do about what someone thinks or you know, how, how, what you wrote strikes someone, there's, there's nothing you can do about that. So I've learned to accept that. Um, and I think I've developed a very hard skin, you know, at, at the very beginning, um, you know, I started with short stories, you know, I wrote short stories for 10 years before, you know, even doing novels. And that was a training ground, you know, for rejection. And then um, with the first book, Time of the Locust, you know, I, I saved, you know, I have a, I have a rejection folder and I saved everything. I saved all of them, you know, all of the rejections, you know, those are my scars and I'm proud of them. And, you know, I can, I can look at them and say, yep, but I'm doing this anyway. Yep. You thought this, however, you know, this is what I'm saying regardless. So um, I think um, any writer would, would have to know that um, rejection is, is part of it. And probably what's helped me the most is I'm able to block everything and everyone out when I'm writing. You know, I don't write for an audience that I don't think about the reader at all when, I, when I'm writing. Um, I'm only thinking about the world that I'm building, the messages that I'm trying to convey, the experiences of the characters. And I think you have to look at rejection the same way. You know, there's, once it's out in the world, once you write something and put it out in the world, it becomes a, a, a creature of its own. You know, it's on its own. You know, there's there's nothing I can do at this point. <laughs> what is your favorite word? Magic. That's an easy one. Magic. Magic's my favorite. Well, thank you so much for your time and this this beautiful book and this conversation. I'm really, really honored. Thank you so much. This has been a real delight. If you like today's show with Maroa Yejide, author of Creatures of Passage, check out my interview with James Hanaham, author of the novel Delicious Foods. We talked about presenting a story out of order, human exploitation, addiction, and violence against Black lives. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 380 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. 
Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Peter Orner, Elizabeth Strout, and Katie Standifer. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.